couldn't help but think of the story of the minister who showed up Sunday morning to preach and had a Band-Aid on his cheek. And after the uh, message, uh, one of the more mature godly saints of the congregation said, oh, Pastor, what happened there? And he said, well, you know, this morning I was uh, shaving and uh, thinking about my sermon. And uh, while I was doing that, I accidentally cut myself. And the reply was, well, Pastor, what I think is you should have been thinking about your shaving and cut the sermon. Hopefully, that will not be the case this morning. We are in Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, It's reproduced in your copy of the bulletin, uh, beginning in verse 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. And then more particularly for us today. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, He went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him back from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. We're taking extra time uh, to look at Abraham uh, as an example of saving faith in Romans chapter 4, 
the Apostle Paul uses Abraham as an illustration, an example for Christians of uh, what it means to be justified by faith alone. Paul uh, spreads out that doctrine as clearly and understandably as can possibly be done. And then he says, for example, Abraham was a man who was justified by faith. And the writer of Hebrews now wants to expand on this life of faith that Abraham lived. And so Abraham is a key figure in the Christian faith. That's why we're taking a little more time to consider him. Galatians 3.6, Paul says, consider Abraham. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are the children of Abraham. Galatians 3.29, Paul says, if you belong to Christ, okay, got your attention? If you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's heir and heirs according to the promise. And then as I mentioned in Romans 4, Paul says, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to Abraham's offspring. Who are Abraham's offspring according to the New Testament? Not only to those who are of the law, not just his physical descendants who believe in Christ, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. Talking to Christians. So just sort of let that roll over in your mind and heart uh, this morning, but put it on sort of a side burner. Uh, Abraham's faith by this time has already been tested. He's been called by God to go to the place uh, of promise. Great, where is it? God, never you mind that. You just go, and I'll show you. Abraham trusted and obeyed. But the testing of his faith that he has been through is nothing compared to the testing of his faith that he's about to go through. And we're going to look at that under five headings and not a two-part sermon. (laughs) So get ready. And this is the meat of the word. Get the steak knives out because that's where we are. A miraculous birth, a morbid command, a melancholy obedience, a magnificent salvation, and a monolithic application. A miraculous birth. In Genesis uh, 12, it says, I'm going to make you a great nation. And so at the age of 75 years, uh, Abraham uh, pulls up stakes, tent pegs, literally, uh, and moves to the place where God shows him. Uh, And he lives there. And God's promised that he's going to bless him and uh, make him a great nation. And he lives there and he lives there and he lives there. He's been there for 10 years. And so then in Genesis 15, God says, look toward the heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. And then God said to him, so shall your offspring be to childless Abraham, who's 85 years old. God says, so shall your offspring be. And so Abraham's pondering this, and he goes, oh, well, he must be talking about my my heir, Eliezer. I'm childless, and so my servant inherits my stuff, 
and, and all the promises. When, when I die, you must mean Eliezer. Thank you, God. No, not Eliezer. God says, an heir is going to be born from your seed, Abraham. From your own body, says the scripture. Abraham's 85 or 86-year-old body, huh? Okay, maybe. Remember, 85 or 86 back then was, you know, maybe kind of akin to maybe in a man's 50s or 60s now. Okay, it could be done. It's a stretch, but it, uh, it can be done. You know, what about Sarah's body at this point? And, and uh, not, not so much. And so Sarah goes, ooh, 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 I know, I know. Go in and have relations with my maidservant and have a baby by her, and that will be the seed that comes from you, just like God said. And Abraham's like, great idea. And so he does. And uh, Hagar, the maidservant, conceives, has a baby. And uh, uh, you might expect at this point to read in the scriptures, and Hagar bore bore Abraham a son, and they named him Jehovah-Jireh. The Lord will provide. Look, God has provided a son, just like God said. And it's from the seed of my body, just like God said. And so Abraham's you know, probably feeling uh, pretty good. He, he has a son. Uh, life is good. God is faithful. God's fulfilled his promise. Now, fast forward 13 years. Abraham is 99, Sarah, or Sarai, his wife, is 90. And so in Genesis 17, God says, I will give you a son by her. Speaking of Sarah, we just read in the scripture reading that God says, I'm going to change your name from Abram to Abraham because you're going to be the father of many nations. I'm changing Sarah's name from Sarai to Sarah. Sarai a princess, Sarah, the princess, the princess of many nations. And God says, I'm going to give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her, God says. And Abraham fell on his face and laughed. And I read a couple of commentaries that said, Abraham laughs because he's filled with joy and the confident expectation of him and Sarah conceiving. Yeah, that's not what it says. Abraham laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? It's clear that what Abraham is thinking is, God, you must be kidding. You must be joking to think that we're going to have a child. And not only that, in what is not that usual a circumstance, God tells Abraham what the child's name is to be and says, you shall bear a son with Sarah and you shall give him the name Isaac. And then as Abraham and Sarah ponder this in chapter 18, as they're just wondering how this can be, 
Genesis 18:14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? As an aside, take that with you into the prayer closet. I mean, hold on to that with both hands as tightly as you can. Is anything too hard for the Lord, that unsaved family member or loved one, that situation or circumstance that feels utterly hopeless or impossible? You don't know how it's going to turn out, but is anything too hard for the Lord? And I love what Paul says in Romans 4. Uh, All of Romans 4 is like a commentary on Abraham and Sarah and this uh, whole whole passage. It says in, in Romans 4, in hope, he believed against hope. Don't, don't, you, don't you love that? He's like, okay, I, I believe, you know, God, you can do anything. Is anything too hard for you? No, nothing is, is too hard for you. You know, I'm not exactly seeing it. And so how does that play out? Maybe you've never thought about this, and maybe it's a commentary on my heart that I have thought about it. Uh, Not in a good way. But God has promised 100-year-old Abraham and 90-year-old barren Sarah that they're going to conceive and have a child. Have you ever thought about what that was like? Where Abraham stands at the tent door and says to his loving, somewhat aged wife, well... And she's like, well, what? <laughs> like, well, God says we're going to have a child. So, you know, <laughs> we don't believe that Isaac was the result of an immaculate conception. Jesus was the result of an immaculate conception. Isaac was the result of a miraculous conception, but not an immaculate conception. They're both involved. I would suggest to you that took faith. <laughs> not to mention the help and strength of God. And so sure enough, Sarah becomes pregnant in the ordinary way, as God promised, and they have a son, and he is named Isaac. Do you know what the Hebrew meaning of the word Yitzhak, or Isaac, is? Some of you do, some of you do not. Isaac is Hebrew for laughter. Abraham says, you must be joking. God says, I got news for you. The joke's on you. (laughs) Your little joke. There he is, Isaac, the son of promise. And so we have a miraculous birth. And then, fast forward again, you have a morbid command. And and given what plays out, we, we don't know Isaac's exact age at this point. But he can't be a ch- an infant or probably even a child, considering he's going to be called upon to carry the wood uh, for the altar of sacrifice on his back. Okay, a five-year-old isn't doing that. Not many seven-year-olds probably are doing that. And so in the reading that I did, it's hard to pinpoint Isaac's age, but many put him somewhere between the ages of 15 and 25. You know, either the peak of his teenage years or maybe even a young adult. All the Bible says is this, Genesis 22. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. And he said, Abraham. And Abraham said, here I am. And God said, take your son, your only son, 
lest there be any mistake who I'm talking about, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. I mean, think of all that Abraham has been through, and I won't rehearse his whole life story again, starting with his being called away from his homeland at the age of 75. It would have been easy for Abraham to think, God, I've been tested and tried. I've been through the ringer of your testing, and now I'm old and advanced and somewhat weak and decrepit. Now I can live my life in ease. I have the son of the promise whose descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. But what we find with Abraham for our instruction is that sometimes the hardest testing from God comes at the end of our lives, not at the beginning. And so now Abraham is faced with a dilemma. It's a moral dilemma. It's an emotional dilemma. It's, it's a spiritual dilemma. Because Abraham is confronted with two irreconcilable propositions from God. On the one hand, God has said, your son is the one through whom I'm going to give you descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. And now God says, I want you to take your son and I want you to kill him. What do you do? What, what, what do you make of that? In not just the death of what God has promised, so God's gone back on his word and broken his promise. But, you know, forget about that. God wants me to kill my son, the, the, the one who is the heir of uh, my loins and those of, of Sarah. And so you have this bizarre command from, from God. It's clear and understandable. It's not cryptic. You don't have to go to the original Hebrew to figure out what God was saying. Take your son, sacrifice him on the altar of sacrifice to me. What does Abraham do? Genesis 22, 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. I read a dozen commentaries, including MacArthur, including Swindoll. You know, some of the best of the best. Every one of them without exception, you know. What great faith. God commands. Abraham is quick to obey. He rises early in the morning. He wants to get at it right away and do what God has told him. Everybody I've known of, it's not a universal thing, but several said that, except for one, 
and of course that would be one of my mentors, R.C. Sproul. And if any of you heard R.C. preach on this, I won't do it as good as he does it, <laughs> but you've heard it before. In preaching on this passage, R.C. said, okay, you know, that's certainly plausible. That is certainly plausible that that was Abraham's attitude and spirit, and so he rose early in the morning. R.C. says, you know, or, you know, maybe what happens is he's been commanded to kill his son, and so he goes to sleep, and he's there, and he rolls over, looks at the digital, figuratively speaking, 1.23 a.m., and he rolls back, closes his eyes, rolls over again, 1.55 a.m. How well would you sleep? <laughs> I mean, put yourself in Abraham's. How well would you sleep? Your, the next day, you've been called upon and commanded by God to kill your son. And you're going to sleep on that? Really? 3 a.m., Abraham is like, this is ridiculous. So what does he do? He gets up. And he's got all this adrenaline and all of this emotion and all of this anxiety. And so what does the scripture says? He goes out and he saddles the donkeys. He goes out and he cuts the wood. How many servants does Abraham have? He's probably got 500 servants. What's he doing saddling the donkey? What's he doing cutting the wood? I don't know this with infallible certainty, but I really doubt that you're going to drive through South Florida and see Donald Trump with a pail and a sponge washing his car. I don't think that's happening. I don't think you're going to be driving around and see Elon Musk mowing his yard. <laughs> They've got people for that. Abraham had people for that. What's he doing? He can't sleep. And he's got all this pent-up energy. And he's got to do something. So he saddles the donkeys. And he chops uh, the firewood. And then when they get to the place, he says to the young man, the boy and I will go to the mountain and sacrifice. And then we'll come back. And again, every commentator I know says, what great faith. Abraham's been told to kill his son, but he expects God to do something for his son to somehow still be alive. We will go make the sacrifice and we will come back. Or, for the last time, but again, as R.C. Sproul suggests, what is Abraham supposed to say? You guys stay here. I'm going to the mountain. I'm going to kill my son and then I'll be back. <laughs> What's he going to say? Except we're going up and we'll and we'll, we'll come back. <clears throat> and so he takes the wood for the sacrifice, puts it on the back of his son, his only son, that he loves. And off they go. And young Isaac says, Dad, there's the wood for the sacrifice and the knife and the fire, but where's the sacrifice? Abraham says, Son, God will provide the lamb. Does he know what he's talking about? I don't know. <laughs> Maybe he does. Maybe he doesn't. 
But in any case, he believes that God will make provision. And at this point, even at this point, on the last leg of their journey, it is almost certain Abraham's already made up his mind he's going to kill him. And, and so he's already inwardly mourning the death of his son at his hand. And as the writer of Hebrews tells us, that apparently Abraham figured, I'm going to kill him, and God's going to bring him back to life. Abraham believed in the resurrection of the dead. And what God had said in Genesis 18, is anything impossible for God? Abraham's like, I guess not. I'm sure it's not. But it was already over long before they got to Moriah in Abraham's heart. Isaac was gone, and Abraham was going was gonna to kill him. And so he, he binds his son, who, by the way, probably could have fought back and won. 15 or 20-year-old boy against a 100-year-old man, yeah, my money's on Isaac in that grappling match. But he didn't. He completely submitted himself trusting his father. And so without a word, he lays on the altar of sacrifice and Abraham reaches down and then pulls out the knife that he's about to plunge into his boy's heart. And, and, and as he's just ready to kill him, comes the voice. Abraham, Abraham! Yeah, what, what, what? Says, now I know you fear God, for you have not withheld your son, your only son, from offering him up to me. This was not primarily for God's sake. It's like, well, I wonder if Abraham really trusts me. Now I know. No, this was for Abraham's sake. This is so Abraham could see that he really did trust God for everything, even the dearest thing in, in his life. And so at this moment, God provides a miraculous salvation. Abraham is there. He looks. There's a ram caught in the thicket. Abraham puts it all together. They get the, the, the ram, put him on the altar of sacrifice, Isaac is cut free and spared back to life from the dead, as far as Abraham is concerned. And God has provided a substitute in the place of Isaac. Now comes Jehovah Jireh. Now, Abraham says, we're going to name this place, the Lord will provide. Because in this plate, he has indeed been uh, provided Really, what was the point of, of all of this? The point is that up until this point, what we have in Isaac is uh, uh, Abraham is saying, this is my son, my only son, uh, whom, whom I love. And God, in so many words, is saying, uh, you know, Abraham, suddenly it's become all about you. And it's never all about you. It's always all about me. Isaac isn't your son. Isaac is my son. 
Isaac isn't your son of the covenant. Isaac is my son of, of the promise. Isaac isn't the son you love. Isaac is the son that I love. And so because he is mine and not yours, you need to give him back to me. I'm the one who gave him to you in the first place. He was a gift from me for as long as I deign for you to have him, and so I always retain the right to take him back because he's not yours. He's mine. And Abraham gets it. He puts him to death in his heart, and he has Isaac back alive. Can you only imagine the prayers of Abraham from that day forward? Every morning, Heavenly Father, thank you for Isaac being alive today. I know he didn't have to be. I know I have no right for him to be. And I know you have the right to take him anytime you want. But he's alive today. And that's a gift of your grace, Father. And so I thank you. I thank you for that. And Abraham never has to worry about it again. Because Isaac is not his son. Isaac is God's son. And God will, will take care of him. Some of you, I know the lights are coming on. We already just bleed right over into the applications, uh, applications for us. Isaac started as a gift from God, but apparently over time, Abraham began to worship the gift and not the giver. And God said, that can't be. That, that can't be. He's become an idol in, in, your, in your heart. You know, Isaac is the source of my joy, the source of my happiness, the source of my security, uh, the source of my future hopes. Everything that is all about me is wrapped up in, in Isaac. And everything I expect or need or want is in Isaac. That's an idol if it's not God. God says, no, I'm to be the source of your joy and happiness and hopes and futures and expectations. You need to offer that to me as mine. What are, what are our Isaacs? I mean, you know, it's not rocket science. What are the things that we look to for happiness, joy, contentment, which we should be looking to God? What are our Isaacs? Is it our health? Is it our job? Is it, is it our, our family? What, what, whatever it is, you know, we, we have to be specific, not think in generalities. What are those things? Are there, thing, are there things you've withheld and not offered on the altar of sacrifice to God? God, this is a gift from you, and I give it to you. It's yours. If you take it, I'll thank you for that. If you give it back to me, I'll thank you for that. Either way, it, it, it's yours. Do that. Do that today. And, and are not some of the greatest hymns we know written in this whole in this whole spirit all all for Jesus all for Jesus all my ransomed beings powers all my thoughts 
and words and doings all my days and all my hours. All for Jesus. All to Jesus I surrender. All to him. Husband, wife, children, grandchildren, job, health, secure, house, car. All to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. We never can prove the delights of his love until all on the altar we lay. For the favor he shows and the love he bestows are for them who will trust and obey. Abraham could have written those, <laughs> but he didn't. They were written for us. And then John 8, 56. John 8, 56. Jesus says this. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Really? What did Abraham see? Abraham saw uh, the wood of the sacrifice laid on the back of his son. Abraham saw his son go to the altar without a word of objection or complaint. Abraham saw truly in his heart his son die by his own hand. Isaac's father, the one who killed him, in his heart. Abraham saw God provide a substitute in the place of Isaac to ensure that Isaac's descendants would exist and be blessed of the Lord. And Abraham saw Isaac resurrected from the dead. Jesus says, Abraham saw my day and was glad and rejoiced. That's what Abraham saw. Looking at his son. What do we see? Looking back. We see God the Father putting the instrument of his son's death on his back. His son, his only son, whom he loves. We see the Father watching his son go to the altar of sacrifice without a word of complaint, without a word of objection. We see the father killing his own son as a sacrifice for sin, not figuratively this time, not in his heart, but really literally in time and space and history. The father pours out his wrath on his own son. We see the son as the substitute so that the son's descendants would exist, believers in Christ, and be blessed of God. We see the son of God raised back to life from the dead to ensure that the descendants of Abraham, those who believe in Christ, would be as numerous as the stars 
in the sky or the grains of sand on, on the seashore. Abraham, Jesus said, saw my day and was glad and rejoiced. Do we see Jesus' day and are we glad and do we rejoice? That's what this table is. This table calls us to see Jesus' day when he died on the cross in our place as a substitute out of the love of God so that we might exist and be blessed. I suggest to you that the table of the Lord is somber, but it is not sad. It is somber, but it is not sad. (laughs) We should see this as Abraham did and be glad at the love of God who loved us and sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice for all our sins. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the faith of Abraham, the father of us all, who believed and was saved, that we might walk in the footsteps of his faith by believing in Christ our Lamb of God who takes away our sins and be saved. In spite of all that may happen to us or around us, may this unshakable redemption be our light and hope and joy. In Jesus' name, amen.